converse and debate in this room before moving on to the Ulster Reform Club and having it as we have decided after the venue as well. So, if you're in any year of your university and want to have a truly fantastic formal cap off the year with some great friends and great atmosphere, please do make sure to come along and keep posted on all of our various channels, our emails and social medias to keep up with the info on it. Uh, next big announcement that I have, um, <clears throat> sorry, dehydrated, uh, is info on our annual general meeting. This is another very important event for all members because it lets you decide who's going to be leading the society into the new year. Think if you're sitting there and you're a young aspiring member of the Literific and you think I could do a much better job than Hughes, then this is your chance to put your name forward to be on the committee next year. If you're on the council, give us a woo-ha. Hiya. You. Of course. You'll be able to nominate yourselves for the positions of president. That's me. You know, I recommend that someone has a year of committee experience before going for that one. You can be the secretary. You can be the new Matthew Bradley. Or a different version of secretary. Yeah, or yeah. not insane. Yes, I, I will mention that name. Uh, you can be the treasurer, who is currently Mr. Jay Glasgow, the master of coin. You can be Matthew Bryson. I'm not sure what he does. <laughs> what is it you do, Mr. Bryson? Have you legitimately forgotten? <laughs> I'd like you to tell me. Um, so, uh, I'm the internal convener, so I hold a meeting every year for most of you. I should call it being the one, um, where we decide which uh, motions we're going to debate in the year, and I set up uh, the, who's going to debate other motions. So all six people have either been pestered by me or have come to me um, to debate this evening. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, there's other committee. Mm -hmm. You can be the external convener, who is the one that will handle our external competitions and any ID we run here. Uh, Put your hands up if you've been to any IEVs this year, if you've travelled away for anything. See? This is when we have competitions down across the island and at other universities. You'll be the person responsible for registering people from us for those and sending them on down. Which are, as anyone who's been will tell you, is a great time. Uh, there is the position of Outreach Officer. Hiya. Currently held by Miss Chloe Ferguson. Has responsibilities for the school comp every year, and I'll let you explain because you like to explain better than I do. Um, are we going to talk about the constitutional changes? Yes, I'll do that at the end. Like, just explain what's going to be. Okay, well, okay. So, um, I do school comp, so that basically that's most of you were there or involved in some aspect yesterday, and um, so that basically means just a lot of admin, emailing teachers, basically just trying to be really nice to them so they'll come and give us money. Um, but also, it's really important because. You know, it's not just so Matthew Bryson or training people get on to kind of um, prepare debates for you guys here, but we're kind of preparing debates for people who might come to Queen's. And it's really important to kind of foster that sense of um, debating and then from a young age, kind of get involved in the community and spirit. But also this year, and um, which will become a compulsory part of the outreach role next year, is to deliver workshops in schools. So that basically means reaching out and maybe organizing a few internal um, competitions within them. And yeah, the, I've got so, got so much admin on it that whoever goes into it, you'll be fine. You just will be. <laughs> That's it. Um, after that, we have the position of technology officer, which is a bit different in that it is an appointed rather than elected position. You put yourself in for it, you will be interviewed by the currently absent Jake Kieran, 
And Martin Bradley down there will decide if you are fit for the role and shall completely bypass democracy and place you in it. So yeah. the appointment has to be confirmed by what's that's not entirely true. After that is the training officer, it's currently Mr. Russell Nairn. That'll give you responsibility for running our, our bi-weekly training workshops. So that's, as again, a very good role to have, and it's one that has been beneficial to, I believe, many members here. Uh, and then, lastly but not leastly, is the social officer position, which we plan to, at the AGM through constitutional amendments, rework slightly into an events officer, which will have responsibilities for charity events and our general social events. They'll be the likes of our, you know, the pub crawl we have following those sorts of things. That covers the committee positions. We shall be meeting on March 12th for a hopefully brief, though the last one was about five hours long, uh, meeting to confirm all of those things. I will try to keep it shorter. Uh, so, please keep an eye out for all of that. Uh, and if you do want to get involved in any way, talk to any of the people currently holding their rules or to myself, because we'd like to see anyone who's interested uh, getting themselves involved more, because you're all such a lovely bunch of people. Obviously. But I am not done yet with the announcements because there's a lot this week. In two weeks is the annual. Yeah, it is two weeks. In two weeks is the annual Dufferin competition. And are all the speaker slots for that filled? No, no, so that's basis. The annual Dufferin competition is ran in a BP format, which is a special debate we do every single year where you do not know the motion until 15 minutes before it happens. So, this is a prestigious event because it is how we award our Speaker of the Year. It's the person who is judged best that evening, not by a vote, but by a panel of members of the society who will be judging that evening. So, if you think you have the clout to be our Speaker of the Year, please do talk to Mr. Matthew Bryce and put yourself forward for it. It's always a very interesting evening. Um, I do believe that he's not here to confirm. We should be having a training workshop next Wednesday, the usual time of 6 o'clock. So keep an eye out for that as well. Always a great way to improve. Now, <clears throat> I do believe that sums up the announcements. Haven't forgotten anything? No. That is a nice change of pace. So, uh, we now move on to bringing up to read the minute of last week's meeting, which was... I broke these last night and I genuinely forgot them. This house regrets disaster tourism. I was going to... Oh, yeah. I was going to go for the one that was the week before that. Oh. It's not that one, and I've forgotten that that one is not really well. I am not joking. When this happens, I genuinely forget every single week what we did the week before. <laughs> and so now, please welcome him up, your maestro of minuting, Mr. Matthew Bradley. Hi. Uh, do, uh, I'm not going to do Do You Want to Hear Some Minutes this week, I'm just going to read them. Do you want to hear some minutes? Yes! yes. Good! So I've got some. The 19th ordinary meeting of the 170th session of the Queen's University of Belfast Literary and Scientific Society took place on the 21st of February 2019 and was attended by around 30 members. President Dorman opened the meeting with some announcements, including the announcement of our annual general meeting to be held on the 12th of March and the annual conversazione, which will... That's my pen. Uh, which would have been held on the 19th. Pen. I need to amend this. <laughs> this is a lovely pen. This is a good pen. It was, was to be. There we go. 
So if anyone says no to my pigments as red, don't say that I don't fix these for you. There you go. That is a lovely pen. Um, was to be held on the 19th. The President also commanded the delegation who were to attend the Galway IV, comprising, and I quote, four lovely people and also Mr. Shea Glasgow. <laughs> then some minutes were read by Secretary Matthew Bradley, HLN, the 229th most powerful student of the UK, as voted for by readers of the TAP. You're welcome. Unfortunately, he was fined for swearing, a fine he hath not brought this week, but shall endeavour to do so with due haste. Then it was time for private members' business, which was started by Mr. Morgan Heckman. We asked the House's opinion on Shamima Brigham, a young woman who left Britain to join ISIS and decided to return to the country with her child. Mr. Jack Patton noted the status of the child as a British citizen stuck in a refugee camp, and Mr. Tom McGuinness bemoaned the online vilification of Ms. McGowan, despite the fact that she had been brainwashed. Ms. Tarragrace Conway noticed the existence of ISIS bribes attempting to re-enter other states. Mr. Russell then stated that Ms. McGowan is still criminally responsible and should have to face the consequences. Ms. Bethel Hobbs brought up a recent trailer for The Secret Life of Pets 2 and its problematic paralleling of transgender issues. Mr. Cormac Donaghan expressed concern for the flippancy of the production company in dealing with this issue, and Mr. Russell then saw this as another example of Solis executives hijacking a topical issue in the worst way. Mr. Jack Patton noted the abhorrent social media response to a QUB pro-life demonstration outside Queen's. Mr. Sarah Grace stated that while we do not have to agree with their opinion, they are nonetheless entitled to it. As a registered society, Mr. Morgan Edmund observed the SU status as a pro-choice union and stated that we must have rational conversations regarding this issue without dissenting into vitriol. On that topic, Ms. Chloe Ferguson asked the House's opinion on a recent motion passed in Student Council to implement a no-platforming policy. Mr. Russell then stated that while no-platforming policies have their uses, it must protect against hate speech and vitriol, and simply not simply silence those with unpopular opinions. Mr. Hickman concurred, stating that terminology such as racist and sexist can often frequently be abused. Then it was time for President's questions, sponsored by Kuiper's Kebab Shop in Ballonina. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is close. Mr. Russell then asked the President whether he prefers the red or blue vitaseid he was drinking. While the President claimed the raspberry was closer to actually being a drink, he claimed the bottle gum was closer to the trash of childhood. Hmm. Mr. Cormac Donegan asked the President the topic of his drunk lecture, and he responded with the history of video game controllers, because that is what he did his lecture on. Mr. Russell then, channeling the spirit of the motion, asked the President if he could visit any location where it would be. The President stated he would go to Balmina to get a Kuiper's kebab, a discussion which became slightly too genocidal for the House's tastes. <laughs> Unfortunately, this kebab shop was closed, so Hugh shall never again taste of their luxuriant meat. <laughs> Before the vote of prior opinion, the President walked over to the Secretary and, flicking the money that had to be reimbursed all over him, making it rain with that sweet, sweet dosh, I hope it's not too much information for me to say it was de genuinely the sexiest thing anyone's ever done to me. The President then introduced the evening's motion. This House regrets disaster tourism. A vote of prior opinion was taken which read eight eyes, ten nays, and five abstentions. Ms. Leanne Thorpe opened for the proposition, defining disaster tourism as people visiting an area that has gone through disaster in the name of entertainment. Detailing troubling cases of tourists causing disruption and putting themselves in harm's way in active war zones, and commenting on the rise of all tourism, Ms. Thorpe claimed that disaster tourism reduced his real-life issues to entertainment. In his maiden speech to the society, Mr. Jonathan Topping opened for the opposition, and noted that the, ben the benefits disaster tourism may have on the local economy, stating that disaster tourism can provide industry to LEDCs with limited ways to generate income. Mr. Topping claimed that effectively managed disaster tourism is overall beneficial to the areas affected. 
Miss Tiregrace Connolly continued for the proposition, questioning whether Northern Ireland's profiting off the tragedy of the Titanic is in good taste. Miss Connolly noted instances of tourists desiring to make a personal impact on historical sites through theft or graffiti, stating, Nobody's going to remember you and your trip into Auschwitz, Brenda. Ms. Beckham-McMinn spoke second for the opposition, accurately claiming that the assembled members of the literature affect all tourists to our very own disaster zone. Ms. McMinn claimed the importance of learning from these disaster zones and highlighted the effectiveness of witnessing them firsthand. Ms. McMinn stated it was unreasonable to say every tourist is disrespectful to the site and further noted how disaster tourism can build livelihoods and futures. Mr. Michael McConway concluded for the proposition, noting how disaster tourism commercialises and exploits death, claiming that the economic benefits are often offset by tourists intervening in clean-up clean operations of, of recent tragedies. Mr. McConway noted how the taking of selfies at historic sites imposes tourists into the narrative and disregards the history of that site. Ms. Shevin Matt concluded for the opposition, claiming that uh, the disrespectful and uh, reckless disaster tourism is very much in the minority. Ms. Matt stated that tourists should be allowed to spend their money if it benefits those affected and reinforce the importance of visiting historic sites to gain an appreciation of the scale of the tragedy as well as allowing people to commemorate the loss of life. Questions were heard from Mr. Cormac Donaghan, Ms. Pepper Hobbs, Mr. Jack Patton, Mr. Paul McElwain, Mr. Morgan Hickman, and Mr. Auckland McSparrow. A binding vote on speakerability was taken on the motion which read 13 ayes, 9 nays, and 4 abstentions, resulting in a conclusive win of the proposition. May I take a minute as read? Yes. probably briefer than usual due to the absence of regular contributors Shay, Morgan and Russell. So, does anyone have anything they wish to speak about? Well, Mr. Scott. So, uh, anyone who has used social media in the last week probably I know is about Momo. <laughs> and, um, basically, people have been disguising themselves as Momo and talking to kids on WhatsApp telling them self-harm, otherwise they'll be cursed, or something along those lines. Uh, recently this week, it was confirmed that, well, I say confirmed, I don't really know for sure, but um, it was said that the whole Momo challenge was a hoax, and that there's no significant evidence that any self-harm has happened as a consequence of the Momo challenge. But there was still a bit of a stir created by the whole thing. And is that what the people behind the Moomoo Challenge had intended in the first place? Mm. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's just this song. It's represented by an image of a creepy bird faced woman who kind of looks like. So, and has sort of an evolution of classic creepypasta formats for anyone who was on the internet in 2007. Anyone have any thoughts on that at all? Or... Mr. Gilmore? Uh, I think this is just another classic example of media sensitization. Can't say this word. Sensitization. Uh, where it's, it's just brought so much out of proportion. And what you actually see now is people um, replicating this in order to just try and make it true to the take. 
So I think if the media had just stayed out of this in the first place, before evidence was scattered, we wouldn't see this, uh, we wouldn't see trends of this actually uh, existing in the first place. I much rather prefer you guys just think where it's like you have been visited by the cat of good grades forward <laughs> on to five friends and you shall always get a two one. <laughs> uh, any other thoughts in the room on that there? Uh, Miss McMinn. Um, so I volunteer at Kids Club on Tuesdays and I came in this week like in actual tears over the Momo thing and because her friend had sent her a picture um, of this Momo thing. Um, that, like this kid's only like 10 um, and we asked her if she had shown it to her parents and she said no. So I think it's just like a whole, like it's, it's a prime example of just like kids or like parents need to be aware of what their kids are doing on the internet. Like the whole thing, that's what it comes down to, I think. Like, mm -hmm. The responsibility falls on the parents to know what the kids are up to. Anyone else in the room? And if I can make an inquiry, why is it that, oh, sorry, it's Japan. Oh, okay, my student. Well, <laughs> I was going to inquire why it is that like, um, they're able to get access to phone numbers of, for example, 10-year-olds get them on WhatsApp because I thought that was a more like secure method of reaching people. I'm out of touch with how technology works, but I wasn't sure if anyone had any idea how that worked. Mr. Vincent. Is there a further debate then that needs to happen about um, just in regard to young people having access to mobile phones and also social media on such a wide level? Because I think um, having grown up in a generation where, yes, we've had access to mobile phones, but mobile phones were, I think, like snake and like... No, not very much else. Um, perhaps a real conversation now needs to open up about accessibility to the internet and actually what age we want to start um, imbuing our young people with that kind of culture. Hmm. That is interesting. It kind of plays into that, like, um, if anyone's heard the scenario around like, the YouTube kids apps, which um, parents have been finding are very often displaying to children quite unsavory content that can rack up tens of millions of views. So, all very interesting. If there's uh, no further thoughts, I'll uh, move on to see if there are any separate pieces of private member business in the room at all. Mm. Looking like not. Oh, Mr. Patrick. Uh, well, there's been two interesting bits of news that made one together. I haven't read into the second one. Uh, about a couple of hours ago, it was announced that the UN investigation into Israel is uh, leaning towards pressing uh, charges of war crimes against their actions towards. Uh, Palestinian protesters in Gaza, at which point uh, everyone even remembers the story that shot on them. You have said that it was a risk to soldiers. I honestly haven't looked at it as much detail as I should have. And I uh, just seen about five minutes ago, Netanyahu is now being brought up on corruption charges. Probably unrelated to men. Okay. Anyone have any thoughts on that at all? No? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, yes, you get your name for the minister. Uh, is it? Um, so I was volunteering in Palestine uh, during the Al-Aqsa riots and the hunger strike. Uh, there's more, like I think one, two things, one for me, sorry. <laughs> no, first time. Uh, I was about to show you, I worked for the ISM, International Solidarity Movement, during the Al-Aqsa riots and the uh, hunger strikes in 2017. Uh, first of all, I like to notice that the reason why the war are available is not because of uh, Nonviolent uh, participant groups, which is ourselves, uh, who works in the situation. And secondly, it's not just Gaza this is happening, it's all, uh, I was working mainly in Al Hanil in uh, Hebron, in the West Bank. Uh, it happens in Jerusalem and uh, uh, any kind of area we see, um, which kind of, uh, because, quite frankly, because we can't access a lot of these areas, uh, soldiers can often kind of shoot people without any kind of monitoring. 
as a way of testing that get out. Uh, I think over 70% of these situations have been actually judicial uh, institutions. Um, and I think, well, maybe it's not like necessarily war crimes, but the, uh, the kind of situation of uh, de uh, house demolitions is something else that we are often have to cover. And presently at the moment, uh, this is where I actually lives, uh, in Athelio, are being invaded by Israeli uh, settlers, uh, backed up by the Israeli military. I think it's also has to be addressed, it's not just the immediate war crimes which are obviously committed, uh, but it's every kind of situation which is happening under the occupation. Um, both in the West Bank and also serve regular Palestinian and Arab citizens. And also the Ethiopian Jewish population, which we've, had to, we've been asked to help a few times as well. Um, although this wasn't really in our area, we were working in the West Bank, not fully to But so, I made a point. Mm. Uh, Mr. Manning, um, that reminds me actually of a story I was told by um, I have a friend who previously worked in Bethlehem uh, in the West Bank, and um, it just reminds me of what he was saying, how unfortunately the current Israeli government I think doesn't have the long-term best interests of its own citizens, never mind um, Palestinian citizens at heart. Um, so I know there is an Israeli election coming up in, I think it's next month, um, and I guess I just hope that that's a chance for a change of government, uh, a change of heart, and potentially a government that will actually look at properly uh, sitting down for justice and peace um, and coming to, to long-term settlement with the best interests of both peoples of Irish. Mm -hmm. So, I might, I'm going to break a little bit here uh, before we go on to the President's questions and just like, this is something I was expecting someone to bring up over the past few weeks and they never did, so I might just put, put it to the House here. Is that there's been a lot of murmurings about whether or not certain European nations are going to boycott Eurovision for being hosted in Israel. And I was wondering if anyone in the room had any thoughts on whether or not that was a justifiable course of action to take or if that should be done. Uh, a certain It's not in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> also, they let Canada in the middle, all the Australia. Well, I just thought that was interesting, but. Uh, there are any other separate pieces of private members' business in them? Let's be the last one of it. Miss uh, Sweeney. Um, so it was, I think, like last week, Donald Trump suggested that uh, it would be acceptable to uh, extend Article 50 further if no deal was agreed, and Theresa May said she would like to seek an extension to Article 50 for two months. If uh, her deal was slowed down again, and I was just wondering what people thought they needed to extend further to avoid a no deal scenario. There's the, there's the B word. <laughs> um, no, I, I enjoy hearing about it. A lot of people choose not to talk about it because we had a solid like, for two years nothing about that. But anyone else's thoughts on the extension of Article 50? And even like, in relation to that, to regards of whether. Corbyn, and maybe not necessarily the Labour Party itself, perhaps committing to having second referendums or such as well. Any thoughts in the room? Mr. Bryson. Uh, well, for me personally, it's kind of a sigh of relief. Um, I think that the, the Conservative government has uh, two years, and when it comes to no deal, they've effectively made no preparation, so it's actually a brilliant thing for all of us, um, especially when it's such a tense situation here. Um, I think it's finally good to see Labour actually having a position that people can actually say, oh, that's an actual position on Brexit, whereas for the last two years, the, the Labour position has been, uh, ooh, we'll see what happens. So it's finally good to actually have something in both parties to see that's what we're, we're going to go with. It's good to actually see that we're not going to be, just be facing no deal. Um, 
in, in literally a matter of weeks. Hmm. And I know what you're all thinking. What do the Lib Dems think? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, any other thoughts in the room on that? Uh, doing Brexit now, in case you were wondering what you're saying. No, none at all. Yes, Mr. Vincent. Um, I would just ask uh, if, given how the first one turned out, if everyone wants a second plebiscite, do we really want to put it back to the people again? Um, and yeah, because well, that's effectively what it is. It's a modern-day um, direct democracy um, in action, effectively. Um, and the outcome last time was an outcome that a lot of, um, I'm sure, people in you know, a, a university maybe surrounding, in the kind of because I think we are in a fairly kind of liberal environment, perhaps would uh, disagree with the outcome of. Um, but if we give it to the people again, can we not be assured that to some extent the same forces are going to mobilise, and it's a very real prospect that the same result will turn out. Hmm. I cannot comment on my presence or lack of liberality, but uh, anyone else, any thoughts? Would you vote again? Mm. Mr. Pan. I think there was one thing. Two Labour comments were made for me. I think I have Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. In fact, I understood why they were in the position it did, considering their voting base and all that kind of stuff. It was, just, it was the best situation for them to be in. As it comes to the extension, I think this is probably uh, the wet dream of the ERG. Uh, yeah, the ERG, that's the correct name. Uh, where it shows that the current Tory leadership are in crisis. Um, if they hold out a wee bit longer, they might get one of their own in the top. I mean, imagine Jacob Rees Hall or Boris from Brexit. No, They're not Again, I'm from the Border County. I'm happy that there is a lower chance of a no-deal crisis. <coughs> But it's still entirely possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like the um, if we were extending, if we were to extend uh, the Brexit process, probably against what the DRG is is looking for, because it, it heightens the uh, expectation that they could lead into a No Deal scenario longer. It draws on. I think the No Deal people and the DUP in Westminster have climbed up to a position where they can't seem to get back down, or they're probably trying to find a way to get back down. Or, after the movable position. So I, I think an extension of Brexit would probably uh, not be in favour of what the ERG or the DUP stands for, in my opinion. Well, uh, one last comment in the room if it exists, or. Yes, Mr. I am very sorry. Sorry? Yes, of course, sorry. That's uh, I was going to say that um, if a second referendum was to happen, and let's say Remain won, you would have to go through the process of trying to repeal the legislation that's already been passed. And would you not simply just end up with a essentially just the other way around? So, would Theresa May try to push a Brexit deal, or would just be trying to push to stay? They didn't have to try to repeal the I'd just like to hear more about that, Monson. Uh, yep, Mr. Patton. Then I put an This is based on shaky memories, not entirely accurate. Uh, the European Court said that Article 50 can be repealed unilaterally uh, just by the British government. Mm. Uh, all right, well, I'm going to put a backstop on the private members' business for now. Jesus that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I have to come up with these on the spot, all right? I don't know what anyone's going to say. And we're going to swiftly move on to any president's questions, which is where, if for any reason anyone has something they wish to ask me, 
They may do so, Mr. Kirk. Yeah, you must be for prime time, Ms. Cousin, so I can make this a question. And then, in my head, they decided to use as target practice a cutout of Shimima Begum. So, Mr. President, my question is, if you had to use a cutout of someone for target practice, who would you use this in mind? Many, many directions I could go in. Are you asking the whole neutrality taking up Um, not if I kind of respond in a way that is like a joke. Shark Tale. <laughs> I um, I've just had Shark Tale on my mind a lot recently. <laughs> and when I think about the appearance of the Will Smith fish's face, uh, it brings to mind many, many thoughts about what a better world I believe we would live in had the Will Smith fish not existed? <laughs> so to answer, name. <laughs> answer your question, name and shame. for target practice, I would use the Will Smith fish, <laughs> otherwise known as Oscar. same marketing techniques as casinos is wrong. That's, that's my very interesting piece of niche law that I'm going to write about that if implemented would realistically affect very few people. But isn't that what academia is all about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to put an end to the president's questions there before I like insult anyone else. Uh, so, we shall now, as we always do, go to the prior opinion vote. If you pursue academia, I respect you because you're a lot less lazy than I am. Uh, this week's motion is, this house would legalise euthanasia. So, this is our vote on prior opinion, open to both members and non-members, and it's how you felt about the motion walking in today. So, 
If you would vote in favour of the motion, please raise your hand and say aye. suicide, it is the uh, doctor or the whoever is administering the treatment takes the final action. Um, in euthanasia, it's also open for the patient, or sorry, uh, the other way around. In, in assisted dying, uh, the patient themselves are forced to physically take the final action. In euthanasia, that distinction is not, uh, is not necessary. Uh, sometimes 
in, you see in right euthanasia split into voluntary and involuntary euthanasia. Let's just be completely clear. Involuntary euthanasia done against the explicit will of the person, uh, we think is a crime, that's murder, and it's not really a debate whether that should be allowed. Uh, we're talking about legalizing voluntary euthanasia where the, uh, the patient has specifically requested for it. Um, legalized euthanasia must have certain levels of safeguards. It would oppose it otherwise. Um, we, I, I'm going to talk through two different sets of potential safeguards. Um, the exact uh, different jurisdictions will vary on the exact level of safeguards that they that they allow. But we'll go through two different um, two different frameworks now. Uh, first, I'll talk about the Netherlands, which is um, I suppose the first big European jurisdiction to legalize euthanasia. In these cases, um, it must be an express request from the patient. Um, it must be voluntary and well considered. Uh, the patient must have um, unbearable suffering with no prospect of improvement, um, and they must make this with earnestly uh, with full conviction. Um, note that there's no right to euthanasia, and there's no duty on a doctor to provide it either. It's simply the case that a doctor will not be prosecuted for doing so if they comply with the, uh, with the safeguards here. Um, it must be reported um, to higher committee level, so any case um, of, a, uh, of a death that doesn't just come from natural causes uh, must be reported up to higher levels where it is, it is investigated to ensure that the doctor did take due care of the situation. Um, the age uh, in the Netherlands is uh, 16 years um, or 12 with parental permission. Um, it is possible to have debate about the exact appropriate age. Um, I suppose we, we are focusing this debate on the principle of, of whether euthanasia could be legalized or, or should be illegal. Uh, finally, uh, in the Dutch system, um, it's possible to do what's called an advanced directive, where you, uh, when you are in good health but anticipating that your, your health may later decline, you can set out a legally binding um, document saying what you wish, how you wish to be treated in such a situation. Um, Notably, this is used for cases of dementia, um, where it is considered that a patient who is currently suffering from dementia does not have the mental capacity to make that decision of whether they wish their life to end or not, um, and euthanasia is not permitted in those situations. Um, however, it is possible um, earlier uh, when, when you have full mental capacity to set out this document. Um, so we may, may have some disputes about the exact safeguards. What we would say is, if you think the safeguards aren't strong enough, then argue for stronger safeguards. Um, not, if, if your issue is with the safeguards and your issue isn't with the principle of euthanasia yourself, your issue is that we should have better safeguards. So unless you think that, um, that there is no possible set of safeguards that, that would potentially uh, be adequate, then you are in fact in favour of, of legalisation. Um, and different members, different supporters of euthanasia, even different members of the proposition, um, may have different reasons for supporting it, and may have a different, uh, and may even have a different set of the exact legal safeguards. But what does unite us is this principle um, that people should have this autonomy and ability to decide what they wish to do with their own lives. Uh, which actually, because uh, time is moving on, I'll move on to, to my main points. The first is basically, would you do it? The question is, uh, like many of you here, um, I guess I've, I've never been in a situation where it has been, has been faced before me, um, but, it, but it did get me thinking, would you do it if it was somebody close to you, if it was somebody who you cared about, um, who had requested uh, this particular situation? Um, 
would you uh, would you uh, would you do it? Luckily, I've never been in such a situation. Um, but I guess the, the question is, if you wouldn't, um, if you were convinced that they were in unbearable suffering and that was their clear, or it was their clear, unpressured wish for their life to end, um, and the safeguards have been fulfilled, um, would, would you put somebody in prison for uh, a great number of years uh, for doing so? Quickly to move on um, about the dignity of human life, because at the centre of this debate is human dignity. I know that my colleagues in the proposition will elaborate, and that perhaps the opposition uh, and that my friends there will speak about this too. To me, human dignity means respecting other people, and that involves treating them as you would wish them to treat you, but also involves recognising that different people have different preferences and views. Uh, human dignity means that people have agency and autonomy to decide what they wish to do with their own lives, as long as it involves no harm to anybody else. You are a person. Your life is your own. You don't live your life just solely for the benefit um, of pleasing somebody else's uh, moral decisions. Um, and it's not consistent, I believe, with human dignity um, to force somebody to be kept alive essentially for somebody else's pleasure. Um, so I think that is a core part of respecting people um, as autonomous and equal human beings um, that we allow them to choose um, uh, if they are of, of sound mind and in unbearable pain that we allow them to choose uh, if they wish they're left to finish. Um, thank you very much. We hope you both are present. And now to open the case for the opposition, please welcome Mr. Connor Lockhart. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm here to speak. For the opposition, I'd like to thank Mr. Manning for that lucid and coherent uh, introduction to the topic. Um, I appreciate um, the uh, sentiment that we are all coming here in good faith, I absolutely agree. Um, and I want to acknowledge that there are, the reason that this is a difficult ethical issue is because there are very strong arguments in favour. Our argument is that the arguments against outweigh those. Mr Manning referred to dignity, uh, and indeed uh, that dignity can be conferred upon others, conferred upon ourselves, it is the case of our preferences, that is the philosophical position um, of those advocating euthanasia. In contrast, we are speaking of a dignity which is uh, distinct, a dignity which is inherent in each individual. This is the idea which has underpinned much of Western morality for millennia. I propose to demonstrate our case by the consequences of what happens when we depart from this philosophical principle. In the words of Baroness Campbell, when we untether ourselves from this frontier when we uh, engage with arbitrary or ambiguous notions. Indeed, I appreciate that Mr. Manning has already noted that even among the opposition or the proposition, there are different positions on where these safeguards might be. I would begin with the example of Mr. Daniel James. This was a 23-year-old boy, 23-year-old man, who was paralyzed, although not dying, after a rugby game. Now, I do not wish at all to diminish the legitimacy of his pain, his suffering, uh, but the point was after he went to the Swiss Clinic of Dignitas uh, and he said he did not want to have a second class life, he was permitted to end his life. I would argue that in this position, whereas he is at his lowest, where fear, terror and awfulness of the situation are engulfing him, he was given this option of euthanasia, of suicide. 
Contrast this to perhaps other aspects of our society. Alcoholics, people who are drug addicts, uh, perhaps most saliently, people who are suicidal. Do we say to them, well, if that's what you want to do, perhaps that's what you should do, or do we do all in our part to persuade them otherwise? How would we feel counselling people who are suicidal when we have opened up this option in the rest of society? Just, just a moment, because just to, just to, uh, I, I, I recognise that there are other examples, that there are tougher examples. I just wish to use this example to illustrate that the consequences of euthanasia are not always obvious. They are long term. They can be unseen. Uh, I wish to, for a moment, look at disability rights. This is obviously a particularly uh, poignant topic for some. Uh, the activist Liz Carr speaks a lot on this and she says there is a reason that every major disabled rights group in the UK opposes legislation which would allow euthanasia. She states that there is a fine line between those who are terminally ill and those who are disabled in public perception and the emotional power which is there behind the campaign for assisted suicide is based on misplaced pity. Rather than telling us we have everything to live for and we do. We are helped to the proverbial cliff edge and offered a push. She points out the economic arguments about a health service overly concerned with waste of resources, a natural corollary of an overstretched NHS, perhaps that elderly people and disabled people would be seen as a drain. We already know that in the US, some people have been denied life-extending treatments because they are too costly, while the cheaper assisted suicide option has been offered as an alternative. This is not the uh, result of malice. They're not evil uh, people trying to push this because uh, they're simply trying to do wrong. Everybody is coming to this through a moral impulse, but there are significant consequences uh, when we do not look to the long term. The slippery slope trope, uh, which so often comes up, is not an apocalyptic prophecy, but a reality of incrementalism. In the Netherlands, which was mentioned, 7,000 people in 2017 died by euthanasia. That's 4.5% of all deaths. That's up from 4,000 in 2012. There were 13 people, psychiatric patients, in 2011. Again, highlighting that example of, uh, I appreciate Mr. Manning is not arguing for involuntary or non-voluntary euthanasia, but it's a reality that these are actively debated and occur in our wider society in Europe. These are not in primitive, but highly developed societies. In Belgium, euthanasia is allowed in the case of minors with parental consent in some cases. These are tragic cases indeed, but the elasticity of their laws was again noted by Baroness Campbell as something which people could not have foreseen uh, even a few years before. And again, market forces, is this something we want to open this idea up to. The founder of Dignitas became a millionaire after helping 870 terminally ill people die, roughly 100 of whom were British. These are extreme examples. I know that these are not being proposed, but the point is that incrementally safeguards move. It is once we, un we untether ourselves from this principle, we move and we move and we move. These are extreme examples, but these are in developed societies and they were illegal, and that is the point. And so, I would perhaps finish that the individual cases which we, will, which we have and will inevitably hear about tonight are tragic, it cannot be denied, this is a difficult subject, but 
we must step back and look at the longer term consequences. Personal autonomy is what underlies the proposition's argument tonight. This is a very important point. However, when personal autonomy is, goes too far, it sacrifices the collective rights of society. It is not possible to constantly increase individual rights. At some point, it becomes personal autonomy of the strong at the expense of the weak. It is perhaps the elderly or the disabled who are first on this proverbial chopping block. These consequences are real, these consequences are illusory, and these consequences are severe. The safeguards are arbitrary and they do move. And so I would leave you with the thought that do you want to introduce euthanasia into a society where we have an epidemic of depression, where we have an overstretched NHS with a deficit in our resources for palliative care? What kind of society do you want? And if it is one which protects the vulnerable, then I ask you to oppose this motion. Thank you. And now to speak secondly for the proposition, please welcome up Mr. Toby Vincent. Euthanasia is fundamentally one of kindness and of choice. We are born into this world with a distinct lack of both. We grow up in circumstances dictated by others, and we live lives that so often result in us suffering due to uncontrollable factors. For some of us, this suffering starts at birth, and one needs only to think and cast their mind slightly to think of the many horrendous and painful conditions that humans can genetically inherit. For these individuals, their constant struggle to survive in an unfair world means lives filled with pain, pain they did not choose. And so, it is this concept of choice that is inextricably tied with the proposition's argument. The ability to dictate for oneself when the suffering outweighs the pleasure gained from this world, and to do so in a manner that is dignified and minimizes the inevitable hurt of those people around the individual. And euthanasia facilitates this. Dignitas clinics in Switzerland ensure that the final moments one spends conscious on this earth are spent in peace and as painless as possible. That our closest loved ones, our friends and family, are by our side at the end. In a world where any of us could simply just not wake up tomorrow morning. Does this sound such a horrendous way to go? This, the opposition might argue, is just life. Suffering is an integral part of it, but they are wrong. In the same way, when we are sick today and we use antibiotics, when we're in pain and there is no cure, euthanasia offers a remedy. Don't allow the opposition to decry euthanasia as something morally ambiguous in nature. Don't allow them to smear the difficult work done by those who facilitate the practice. Don't, don't allow them to ignore this newfound progression in our society simply because it worries them. All beneficial changes have had their historical skeptics. Is there a sanctity of life? The opposition will certainly argue so. 
But perhaps they should take a moment to consider the ramifications of this statement. Because a sanctity to life, a sanctity of life, does not simply mean its miserable and sordid extenuation against both the wishes of the victim and their family. A true sanctity of life, I would argue, means a life that is worth living as well. One not filled with pain, but one in which humans are allowed to be just that, human. Not just people who are shells, the men and women they used to be, or those in such agonising pain that the only question filling their minds is of how much longer they can stand at all. But none of us on the proposition today are arguing in favour of some kind of dystopian world in which people just decide to kill themselves because their socks don't match, or, God forbid, the literific Mr. Session. No, Ooh. instead, <laughs> instead, just like everything else in civil society, there will be rules and extensive legislation needed. But, in the same way that abortion laws passed in the mainland UK haven't led to the end of contraception usage, it's ridiculous to assume that the passing of euthanasia will suddenly mean the emptying of care homes. Point of order. Yeah. What was the point of the abortion laws that the laws which were passed in the 1950s or 60s uh, were just not all for the current reality of them today? So, um, in regard to my reference for um, abortion law, I'm basically talking about the fact that at the time there was a fear that it would be basically used as a form of contraceptive. It would be um, you know, young people would suddenly just be having abortions left, right, and centre to avoid using contraception. And my point being that hasn't transpired at all. Though, on the issue of abortion, there are some large parallels that are worth recognising. Just like abortion, the termination of life is done for the sake of minimising inevitable further pain. But in this case, I would argue there is even more justification, as those who wish to be euthanised as adults do so of their own accord, and like pieces. And so, to those of you who do support abortion, the case should be clear. But what about crimes? For those who are capable of ending their lives on their own, there is no punishment. And so then, the law stands merely to criticise well-intentioned doctors and willing victims. This is not fair. The world is this we know, but this is not a reason to make it, or to not make it, fairer. And when a person decides that they wish to bring about a peaceful and timely end to their life, and they are in a consenting state to do so, they should be allowed the kindness of euthanasia. To conclude then, on matters of choice, freedom, and for the simple principle of kindness, the answer is clear. Vote for the proposition and allow people to make their own choices about how and when they'd like to know. Thank you. And I'll, I'll just make a minor constitutional point, not a big thing, to, just for clarity. It's a, when we do this, that's a point of information, it's a point of order, is a separate thing that like has caused me a lot of frustration in the past. <laughs> so, just to make that entirely clear, not a huge issue we're trying to call out, but just in case, like, sorry. <laughs>
Ladies and gentlemen of the house, uh, I'll just jump into a summary of my main points uh, and then I'll go into some rebuttal. So first of all, point number one, suicide isn't any different uh, no matter what the circumstances, it still has the same principle. Uh, my second point is there is an inevitable pressure to kill yourself which we cannot control uh, and we cannot expect to. And my third point is that euthanasia will inevitably lead to a discriminatory distingu uh, distinguishing of human life based on your health uh, and we believe on the opposition this is akin to eugenics. So uh, moving on to some rebuttal then, uh, Mr. Marlin uh, talked about if your issue is with safeguards then you should um, you should really rally for better safeguards. Uh, but we're saying that safeguards uh, will never be strong enough because you can never really control them because of the arbitrary nature of euthanasia and of course the slippery slope trope that has been uh, suggested. And human dignity, Mr. Rowling put forward, is about autonomy. Um, but we believe not that human dignity is about keeping people alive but is about protecting their right to life, that life is not exploited by abuse. And on that point, um, there is a very good example of this in uh, a doctor who was, um, he was tried for uh, abusing euthanasia, essentially, and he was found to have killed over 250 patients uh, through the lethal doses of drugs. And his reasoning for this, uh, this genocide of this hospital was to free up local beds. This abuse is the potential for any patient when euthanasia is legalised. And it is absolutely unthinkable. Moving on then to Mr. Vincent's points, uh, he talked very much about the concept of choice and how important it is. Um, we believe that suicide should never be a choice. Um, it's not a choice due to depression, and it shouldn't be uh, in uh, terminal illness situations. Because we cannot make that choice, sorry, no, thank you. Uh, euthanasia is often uh, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Many immoral things have been justified through the use of kindness, no, thank you, uh, and noble intentions. You eliminate the chance of it getting any better when the suicide is on the table. Uh, he, he talked about this, there being rules uh, to euthanasia, um, but what about suicides you can't control? due to the general, um, general fact that life has been disrespected by introducing euthanasia onto the table. Now onto my main points. Uh, we believe in the opposition that euthanasia um, should be regarded as any other type of suicide. So what distinguishes euthanasia uh, from suicide? It is the fact that you do it because of unbearable suffering, you do it because you're terminally ill. So what are some of the justifications for this? Well, it's that uh, I have no life left to live, I'm in uh, unbearable pain, it's completely insufferable, there's nothing left for me. But these are the very same, yes. So, uh, in situations uh, where people have the physical means to end their own lives, suicide is not criminalised. Is this not just discriminating against people who don't have the, that physical ability um, to do it without the help of somebody else? And you could call it discriminatory, but we never actively encourage anyone to commit suicide when they are faced with depression. And I don't think euthanasia should encourage people, by being legalised, to commit suicide in these situations. And by being on the table, it actively encourages people to uh, seek that option to end their life due to unbearable pain. So some of the justifications of euthanasia, uh, as, as I mentioned, is because of unbearable pain. 
Uh, but these are the very same justifications that any suicide goes through. Any suicide, you think, well, I mean, I'm, there's no life left for me. So what makes euthanasia any different? Um, I find it an absolute moral tragedy that we as a society can't take a stance together and say, let us prevent suicides. Because this, this blanket statement it isn't allowed by euthanasia. And essentially, by setting conditions on suicide, yes, you can commit suicide if you're in this position. No, you can't if, if you're in this position, because you're just suppressed. And it is completely immoral. How can we ever look a suicidal person in the eyes again and tell them to keep fighting when we actively endorse it as an option to get rid of the terminally ill? Moving on to my second point. In legalizing euthanasia, we create an inherent pressure on the terminally ill to kill themselves, even though that may not be, uh, may not be something they've ever considered before. And now this pressure, it might not be genuine, but the patient could completely imagine it and we cannot deny that this situation could exist. It could be a situation where they believe they're a train on NHS resources. It could be a situation where they believe they're too much of an emotional burden on their family. It could even be a situation where the family actively pressure uh, their family member to commit suicide for inheritance, for example. On that point? Yes. Um, just in regard to that then, uh, you've obviously just spoken about uh, the potential ramifications. Is it not better then to have in this country euthanasia laws and a structured process in which all those um, untoward um, motives basically could be ruled out rather than a situation in which only a certain aspect of society can pay to fly to Switzerland to end their own lives? Is it not far Thank better? Very much, yes. Um, so this situation, obviously, we're talking about discrimination again. Um, and this is very true. But we're essentially saying that that could never be a choice in the first place. Because rules will never be enough and they will always be exploited. If you think about the law, uh, it is always it's exploited every day and you cannot control that. Uh, why is it when physically healthy people commit suicide, they're considered mentally ill? But when a terminally ill person makes the decision to end their life, it is rational, it's dignified, and it's a calculated decision. Dare I say, it's not possible for terminally ill uh, people, is it not possible they could be mentally ill? Is it not possible that they are the most likely to be mentally ill? My final point leads on to this discriminatory uh, distinguishing between human life based on health. So, how are we to say that all life is equal when we uh, leave an option open for people with less desirable lives to end them? I can't understand why euthanasia is painted as a progressive, understanding option, uh, bathed in kindness when it's essentially the biggest affront to the rights of the disabled community that we've ever seen. And having it as an option, we are saying to the disabled community, your life is not worth living, here's a way out. So in summary, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the house, suicide uh, has all the same principle in, all, in every circumstance. The pressure to kill yourself is outside of our control to, to justify referrals. And there is a uh, distinguishing between human life if we put it on the table. Uh, and with that, I beg the House to oppose this motion. Thank you. And now do please go thump speaking finally for the proposition, Miss Chloe Ferris.
I can see that that's true. Um, but, you know, I kind of can also say it brings harm, but that is not what the harm. But this debate is not about the harm and the post-impact of death. This is about the harm that people who are seeking death are currently experiencing. And there seems to be a misconception that we are just going to hand out euthanasia like left, right, and centre. But, you know, there's going to be a process, you know, there's going to be interviews, there's going to be medical examinations. As Toby said, it's a choice that's led by a more stable mindset. Now, for a bit of a ball, there's going to be a lot of integration, but I'm just going to talk a wee bit about it now. So, um, there's been a lot of talk about um, dignity. What's more dignified than ending your life on its your own terms? We're not trying to free up local beds. We're not, we are advocating choice instead. Not all who um, want euthanasia are mentally depressed and a permanent solution to a temporary problem. That is an intangible harm that can, this is about intangible harms that cannot be reversed. This isn't discriminatory, but we are encouraging this. We're letting people have free bodily autonomy. And euthanasia is different to suicide because if it pertains to irreversible pain as proved by medical professionals, like Toby said, a structured process without malicious intention. Law is exploited every day. I mean, can we talk about abortion in England? No, thank you. The legalization of abortions in England led to a straight decline of back alley methods, which I think is kind of what you're trying to get at. Um, life is equal because we we talk about um, autonomy and life that is equal because we aren't making choices for them, we value their opinion. Okay, so in this speech I'll be discussing who's involved in the process of bodily autonomy and choice as my previous colleagues talked about, and with that discussing the institutional frailty which stems from the legality of euthanasia. This shows that tangible harms um, of not legalizing euthanasia and the positive impact of legalization, which means you should vote for proposition. So the crux of opposition's argument is that we would like to prevent harm because we agree with opposition that the group of people who would consider death with dignity are those who are experiencing an intense amount of pain and suffering. But euthanasia is the act of deliberately ending a person's life to relieve suffering. But you see, we're not advocating the death of the elderly, the mentally ill, who are suicidal, and we are, or who want to die for reasons outside of irreversible pain. We're here tonight to explain why euthanasia should be legalized and through the tool of um, of the terminally ill or people who have pre-planned and um, a healthy mindset through the model we've put to you tonight. So the opposition to Fiji that, that if we start this, where do we stop? Could this be a starting point for evolution and knock-on effects and therefore places vulnerable people at risk? As Cameron discussed, we do not advocate that at all with this and um, stream proposition that we need tonight about safeguarding and protective laws are essential to its customs. This is never going to be the only option for somebody. This is about choice and the alleviation of harm. Euthanasia is a last resort. We still argue to put more money into hospice care, into vaccinations, into cure research, into preventative measures, so people don't get ill in the first place. But look at look at Dutch reports. In 86% of cases, euthanasia shortens life by a maximum of a week, usually only a few hours. We still want hospice care. We agree. We want to encourage people and to prolong life. But a life worth living is one that can be enjoyed, and if not enjoyed in that instant, then at least one where you know or professional knows that you can enjoy it later down the line. This is about a death of dignity, alleviating harm when no pain is irreversible. But let's talk about who's involved in this, the actors. We have the professionals or doctors. If there's an issue of morality, the Hippocratic oath literally says, do no harm, where the illegality of euthanasia is pushing and stimulating harm where it's irreversible and terminal. Like take the case of a guy called Paul Lamb, the court literally said to doctors and nurses that they could not help end his, as he called it, living hell. This is proof of the judicial system perpetuating institutional cruelty. <coughs> Okay. On that point? No, thank you. Um, on that, the legalization of euthanasia can eliminate anyone. Um, can eliminate anyone that's not a professional or medically trained forced to aid this act, alleviating the moral burden of those who are being asked to exist. 
We talk about long-term impacts and oh, but think about long-term morality impact on someone who aided a loved one while they cried for help. While there is one main actor in this process, obviously the person who's been asked to be euthanized, there are people involved in the process as well. Think of the moral impact on them in that situation. So the lack of autonomy and bodily choice and institutional cruelty that goes along with it, which perpetuates the suffering and harm propositions seek to eliminate, you need to allow for that problem to be fixed. Okay, so this has obviously gone a lot shorter than I thought it was going to go for. <laughs> okay. Um, look, if I'm being honest, I don't know what I do. It's not about me. It's not about them. It's not about them. You know, it's not like we're not going to know what we're going to do until we're in that situation. So what do we do? We listen to those involved, those who are crying out for help. And what do they want? Well, some of them, they want even easier. Not all of them, I'll admit. But it's about choice. It's about autonomy. It's about preventing more harm than there has to be. And that is why, as a proposition, we are so proud to propose the motion. close out the case for the opposition and the debate as a whole. Please welcome up Mr. Ali Rand. Right, um, firstly, ladies and gentlemen, this is my first debate of the academic year and I'm really nervous. So please, uh, humor me for a second. How many of you have, by show of hands, how many of you have ever worn sunglasses at any point in your life? How many of you are wearing a wristwatch right now? Hmm. <laughs> How many of you can for certain say that you have died at some point in your life? See, now that's weird because I expected the proposition to raise their hands, especially the second speaker, since he was so confident that death would end all pain, end all suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, we as humans, ever since our evolution, we are a megalomaniac species. We have mastered fire, we have conquered life, we have conquered animals. The only thing that we did not have control over was death. And thus was born the idea of a slow, easy, painless death. It was argued by the second speaker in fact that it is unkind and unhuman, inhuman, uh, to keep someone in so much pain and rely against their will. But let me clarify this for a second because this is not a matter of com compassion or kindness. It's a matter of public safety. It's simply a matter of public safety. Is it really conceivable that the British Medical Association, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, the Disabilities Rights Commission, the Palliative Care and Hospice Movements are all so lacking in compassion, in care, that if they discovered a better and safer way to end suffering, they would not implement it? The first speaker said that we are not willing to talk about this issue. Well, let me remind him that the issue of euthanasia has been repeatedly introduced in the House of Lords, in the House of Commons, and in every case, the, vo the votes have always come to the same conclusion that the current law provides protection and safety to vulnerable people and affirms dignity in life as well as death. Now, um, let's talk about the Netherlands for a second. The Netherlands has been mentioned before. Legalized euthanasia in 2002. Between 2002 and 2006, they saw a 317% increase in all deaths related to euthanasia. Belgium, for example, legalized euthanasia again in 2002. Between 2002 and 2003, they saw a 500% increase in all deaths related to euthanasia. 
they the state of Oregon in the United States. Nigel, as you mentioned, 1998, seen a 450% increase. On that point? No. And, you know, again, once again, the first speaker spoke about how um, you can't ignore... Quiet, please. I'm sorry, David. Yeah, the first speaker spoke about how you can't ignore uh, involuntary euthanasia once this is legalized. Uh, you can't ignore it. Well, uh, the thing is, you just can't. You can't ignore the evil that such policy would bring about. And you might think that legalizing voluntary euthanasia would end the practice. In fact, that's not the case. Take Netherlands for, the, for example. 310 in every 4,000 terminally ill patients are involuntary euthanized. And these are official Dutch reports, by the way. And if we were to accept this Dutch model, for example, and translate that to with mathematics, 13,000 people would die every year in the UK due to euthanasia. 10% of which, let me remind you, would be involuntary. No. Now, there are two things that the proposition had to convince us of tonight in order to make us all realize that euthanasia is actually as good as you think it would be. Number one, that the current law does not work, that it's outdated, it's unkind, and it's against the convention of human rights. And number two, that there's an alternate, safer option. Both of which they have failed to do so, mainly because euthanasia is such a rare offense in this country. Less than 20 cases go onto the table of the director of public prosecution, and almost none of which are actually prosecuted. Now, let me remind you that the law does not exist because most of us behave decently, but it exists because some of us don't. Now, assuming that uh, everything will be all right once we legalize euthanasia, it's, it's foolish to believe that changing this law would simply translate the, the status quo into a legal, into legal language. I'm sorry, no, there's no time. Uh, you see, the thing is, ladies and gentlemen, there's a natural tendency to look at a very small number of cases uh, that attract media attention and say that, oh yes, well, um, you know, if you do legalize it, it will indeed uh, rid any legal objection. Well, it doesn't. Changing the law changes the dynamics. It sets a process in motion, a process that it's very difficult to come back from. Mainly, because doctors, no matter whether this is euthanasia, whether it's assisted dying, they are placed at the center of this assessment process. And the median length, at least in the state of Oregon, since 1998, the median length for a doctor-patient relationship has been 12 weeks. 12 weeks in 35 years. Medicare is fragmented. Palliative care is fragmented. Ladies and gentlemen. There is also an assumption that uh, the proposition has spoken about that people are cleared in their minds whether they want euthanasia or they don't. Well, that's just not the case. People are always worried about, I'm sorry, there's no time. Uh, the thing is, every argument put forward by the proposition so far undermines medical, undermines scientific research. The third speaker, for example, spoke about the Hippocratic Oath and uh, how they want to do no harm by introducing this uh, Policy. Well, let me remind her that the Hippocratic Oath also states that I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest such counsel. Ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake, the introduction of euthanasia will be cloaked with words like dignity, mercy, compassion, autonomy, and the proposition has done that all throughout the day. The reality is that doctors will be required to cure their patients. Disabled people encouraged to believe that they'd be better off dead, patients, safe, patients safely compromised, and politicians encouraged to use this new law as a pretext to withdraw resources for the care of the sick. 
the right to do a thing is not the same as to do the right thing. I urge all of you, support the British Medical Association, support the Royal Colleges, support the Disabilities Rights Organisation, support the palliative and hospice movements. Ladies and gentlemen, I urge you to vote against this motion tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for final speech. And if we can get one more round of applause for all of our speeches this evening. Um, right then. Oh, is that for the yeah for the promises? Um, so firstly, uh, actually, everyone really good speeches, and importantly, an issue like this, it was incredibly respectful. So well done to all section for that. Um, one issue that I am going to bring up um, is the issue of. The science isn't 100% correct. Sometimes there can be people who are have mental illnesses that therapy can cure, that they've been told something is terminal when it's indeed not. Again, these are the rare cases, but, and I'm going to allude this to uh, something else, that generally most people, and especially in this room, are against, which is drone strikes. So in drone strikes, uh, generally one of the reasons that most people are against it is because civilians will be killed, innocent people will be killed. People who were not meant to be killed were killed. And if you legalize euthanasia, do you not accept that there will be mistakes in doctors and that innocent people will be killed? People that are not meant to have died because of a terminal illness will be dead because of it. Anyone from the proposition wish to respond? I hope that this analogy um, makes some sense. Um, instead of looking at drone strikes, I'm going to look at cars. Legalization of cars and driving has incontrovertibly, uh, in incontrovertibly led to, to innocent people's deaths. Um, we don't respond to that by banning cars and driving. We respond to that by instituting strong safeguards requiring anybody who wants to get behind the wheel of a car to go through license tests, to go through inspections. The cars have to go through inspections. And we bring the full force of the law against those who will intentionally flout those regulations. So, I suppose what I would say is two things. Um, firstly, it's, I wish it was a world in which we didn't have to consider this, but it's also the case that if we don't legalize euthanasia, there will be people who are going through huge levels of pain who, who, who are innocent people who choose not to suffer that, um, but have to go through it anyway. And then secondly, to say at the end of the day, it is ultimately up to the choice of the person, uh, the individual person involved, and as long as it's as long as it's their choice, um, I feel like they they are perhaps in a better position to to make a decision, look at the evidence, decide for themselves, rather than me telling them through the law that they they should go with the choice that I have chosen for them. Uh, the proposition, wish to, uh, opposition, wish to respond. I, I, I think um, I, I would take a former um, analogy, mainly because um, the analogy between drone strikes and euthanasia both deal with the intentional killing of other people, um, well, you know, for, for whatever reason. Whereas the introduction of cars for a completely separate reasons. So I, I think there is a fallacy there. And um, I think it is important. Uh, this idea of safeguards has probably been one of the most uh, axiomatic issues that has come up tonight. I do not doubt for a moment uh, what is being proposed are very sensible, in, in the context of what you're proposing, very sensible, stringent safeguards. The point which has been made by the opposition is that you cannot avoid 
uh, what will eventually come in the future. So the reason I, I wanted to um, bring it up on abortion laws perhaps was because the legislation which was passed 60 years ago did not envisage the current situation today, even if it did, it did not reach the hyperbolic uh, comparisons which were made back then. Indeed, does anyone remember the enormous controversy over IVF? And is that a particularly controversial issue today? The moral issues haven't changed, but society does move. And this is the problem with incrementalism. Once you open up, untether yourself from that principle that there is inherent dignity in each person and that we are allowed to tamper with that, we are allowed to discern when a life should and should not live, then you untether yourself uh, and you allow an arbitrariness of safeguards. So I'm sure whatever the initial safeguards are brought in uh, would be far more stringent than in 50 years. And indeed, that has been illustrated tonight as the case in Belgium or in Holland or in Switzerland, where we've seen the introduction of what people thought was the laws and then pushes and pushes and pushes. Euthanasia, euthanasia is used more and more and more. Involuntary euthanasia, which you have stated you're wholly against, Absolutely. But again, it seems to be an issue which is actively argued. Now in Holland, we're asking, should we have uh, the uh, done with life doctrine? Anybody over 70 who is simply tired of life should be able to access euthanasia. This is an active argument, although it hasn't become law yet. But this is the purpose of, uh, of opposing euthanasia on the ground of incrementalism. And that's why the safeguard is a fallacy of I'll be a well-intentioned uh, proposition. <laughs> um, now we'll move to any questions in the room for the opposition. Yeah, it's just it's just nearly out of battery, isn't it? <laughs> 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 just like just like last year. My battery is low. It's getting dark. Oh. Oh. Rest in peace, Mars Rover. Uh, <laughs> any questions now for the opposition in the room? Uh, Mr. Um, so one of the arguments put forward, or one thing said by the opposition was that it's part of Hippocratic oath that doctors obviously take, uh, which is the idea that you shouldn't be, some effect of administering poison even if it's asked for. Now, the Hippocratic oath was obviously uh, created a very long time ago, it was by the 14th century. Good job. Like agree that obviously our understanding of ethics has developed considerably since then. Now that we have the ability to give people options to end their suffering rather than continuing needlessly if they're going to die anyway, that uh, yeah, they should adopt the option to I don't respond. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> always, always on the um, So, yes, Hippocratic, Hippocratic Oath, uh, written a very long time ago. We have moved on since then. We've moved on uh, in tremendously good ways, tremendously bad ways as well. Uh, we live in a society that is more disposable than ever. We just throw away things when they don't work. But the one thing that you can throw away is human life. Because like we've already illustrated here, all the opposition, there is no going back. Uh, once you take that step, you, you, you can't get back from it. So even though we've moved on a lot from the days of the Hippocratic Oath, this one thing remains constant, the human dignity of life. Uh, moral principles are also not relative. So once something is suggested, 
Uh, I'm trying to myself. Uh, so, throughout uh, history, we have always known what is right and what is wrong. We have always had a sense, we've always had, we've always had basic morals. And no matter how much society changes, we uh, can hold these values true. So even though we've been a very long time ago, we can still reconcile today and basically we have human life. Thank you. Anyone from the proposition wish to respond? Yeah, I agree. Um, so just, um, yeah, and even in the contradiction, I think we're probably going to put something there, but I mean, you were going to take a few eyes, so I was going to try. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's a contradiction in Hippocratic Oath, why is there not our sisters to be something wrong there, like kind of um, bumped up each other? Why would that not be applied to other cases? Hence, our law now, but we can we talk about it. This one thing that's stayed constant. Why is that the one thing that's stayed constant? We can't just pick and choose when what's most um, reliable to us or um, beneficial to us at the same time. So, yeah, completely agree. Okay, uh, right. We're going to move on to any. Oh, Steve. Yes, oh, sorry. I, sometimes you might have to draw Any abstaining, that's A B S T A I N I N G, abstaining points. Okay, first today. It'll be a short one. It'll be a short one. Uh, okay. Failing that, wrap back around. Any questions for the proposition team? Mm. Okay. Uh, if there are any other questions for the opposition, but after that, I would stop because it can't be unfair to wait until we're on site. Or are we genuinely done? Flip. That'll be a bit of a record, actually. I can't remember the last time the debate wrapped up this early. I can't, I can't ever remember. It's not really. that bad. I know it's not bad, I have four years, so this is inefficient, is what it is. Like, <laughs> 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 they usually finish like quarter two, what we missed in like three or four minutes. Like, it's <laughs> When someone asks you who has effective chairmanship, remember the name <laughs> Hugh Tiberius Dollars. <laughs> Yes. 
There were 15 votes for the proposition, 10 votes for the opposition, and 7 abstentions. The proposition has the ayes have it. Just a few housekeeping rules before we wrap up. Just remind you all again that nominations for our AGM will be open over the next couple of days. That'll be if you want to be on the council for next year, you'll have the opportunity to do so. We shall similarly be beginning selling tickets for our conference only the annual formal, which is on March 20th, in the next few days as well. Just keep that in mind. This is person. Um, can I say we are going for any of the roles? Um, do you like Drop us a message and talk to us about because I can really genuinely want to talk to you about yep. this. I don't yep. know because it's hard to say everything that's right. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in running the recommend before the AGM, you should try and attend one of our council meetings during one day at six. You can like, observe the business of things if you want to try and go for something. So that'll be there for you if you want to take part. Uh, Michelle, as always, be retiring to Lavery Bar to continue the debate with some pints as well. We'd love to see as many there as we can. I believe that covers everything, so I do have